invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs, which is the fourth chapter. You may have been surprised when I said a few minutes ago that you're preparing for the sermon. You might have thought you'd already had enough preaching for one day. we get to heaven, we've never had enough preaching. Proverbs chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 9. Proverbs 4, 1 to 9. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son, with my father, tender, the only one in the, in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful gar garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Help us, Heavenly Father, by the wonder and the gift of your Holy Spirit to incline our hearts to these words from your inspired and holy authoritative, infallible book. Holy Spirit of God, that you would uh, illuminate what we have read, that you will cause the preaching of your word to be carried with the Holy Spirit's unction to bring transformation in our lives not to glory in the human voice, but to the glory of the voice of God. <clears throat> so we seek your help. And we pray this for the glory and the greatness of Jesus and for the good and the building up of your church. Amen. Please look at the text of Scripture you have in front of us. Proverbs 4, verse 1. And you'll see that there is an introduction here, O sons. You'll recall, as you have tracked with us in this series on a father's teaching to his son, that each single speech or talk is prefaced with the words, My son... And you will notice that this time and this time only, sons is in the plural. The father is speaking to his sons. It's the only time it happens in Proverbs. And if you were to ask me why here, I would say I don't know. I have no reason but he's speaking to sons. He has several sons in view here. A second distinct, distinctive that we find in these nine verses is that if you have been tracking with this sermon series, you will find that not a single thing new is stated here as far as the Father's instruction. Everything he says here, he's already said. 
He's calling his sons to listen. He's calling them to pay attention. He's calling them, don't forsake the teaching. He's calling them to seek. You'll notice that it's that the wisdom is personified as in a, in a female voice. Seek her. Prize her highly. Love getting wisdom. And there's a promise that we've heard before that at the end, those who seek wisdom and apply it to their lives, their lives will be honored and blessed. And he uses the, the metaphor is that there, it will be like a garland around your neck. The idea being that you will be exemplified in your life. You will live a life of dignity and honor if you listen and obey wisdom from God's word. But the third distinction in these nine verses, one is he's speaking to a group of sons. The other, he just repeats what he already said. But the third and most important distinction, the one we're going to talk about for a while, is that in this passage, we have three generations in view. Notice verse 3. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me. And now the father is passing it on to the sons. This is a very important point. That the teaching of a family often has multi-generations in view. One son learns from his father who passes it on to his sons and then his sons. And God has a plan that the teaching in a home is to be done with multi-generations in view. The classic text is Psalm 78 verses 5 and 6. Hear what the psalmist says. He, speaking of God, established a testimony in Jacob, meaning Israel, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. And here's the phrase that always grabs me. The children yet unborn will arise and tell their children. The psalmist is calling to mind that when God established his word, his law in Israel, his intention was that fathers would teach their children in such a way that they had in view the children of their children and the children of their children, children not even born yet. We rightly emphasize the parental responsibility to teach their children. But Proverbs 4 is now reminding us that it's huge. It's way bigger than that. There is the passage of biblical truth from generation to generation and even in view generations that have not even been born yet. In the middle of this talk that the father is giving in verse 5 are the main imperatives of, of what he's saying to these sons. And if I don't, if I might remind you that I already said at the beginning of this series that we always have in mind moms and dads, sons and daughters. Because Solomon is talking to his sons, and that's the story, but the but the application is always to teaching within the family. And he's saying, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away. Do not forsake. Love her, and she will guard you. There's the main imperative. 
And then we're given promises. Verse 4, if you get wisdom, you will have life. Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Men and women, and particularly sons and daughters here this morning, the commandments of the, the Lord are that you might live for your good. It's for your life. God's wisdom, in verse 6, will guard you and keep you. How will a young man keep his way pure? Answer, with keeping the word of God. The word of God is intended to give you life. The word of God is intended to guard you and keep you safe. Verses 8 and 9. God's wisdom will exalt you and honor you and crown you with life and dignity. We've talked about that. This is repeating. But for some reason, God the Holy Spirit intended that the words of Solomon addressing his sons and then telling his sons that what he's teaching them, he actually learned from his own father. In a sense, he's, David is dead. These sons never got to meet their grandpa. But he's saying, this is what your grandpa taught me, and now I'm teaching you. His dad is sort of saying what some of us as children kind of groan when we first hear it. Remember when I was a kid? How many of you groan when you hear dad or your mommy say that? Tell you what it was like when I was a kid. Solomon is saying, I want to tell you what it was like when I was a kid and was listening to my daddy's teachings. He taught what I've just taught you. Parents, there seems to be two lessons for us in this proverb. Two lessons. Number one. Learn today, moms and dads, that the lessons and the disciplines and instruction in your home will go to future generations. The things that you're telling your children today and teaching them today and disciplining them in today will extend to generations beyond your life. If you are teaching your children with fervency, if you're teaching your children a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ through your words and example, can you imagine the impact that's going to have on children not yet born? We're so short-sighted. When we have our little ones before us and we're lovingly teaching them and counseling them and, and instructing them in the ways of the Lord, we think it's going to impact their life, and it is. But it's going to impact their future marriage, their future children. God has intended that truth is intergenerational. The opposite of that is true also. Beloved, please hear this. The opposite is true also. Failure to pass on biblical teaching with priority and urgency to your children today will also affect your grandchildren. Apart from God's sovereign intervention, The areas of our personal Christian life that we're growing slack in, the areas of our Christian life that we're not caring about, 
that will go to the next generation and the next generation apart from a merciful intervention by God. I call this family entropy. I use the medical term entropy for reason. In other words, don't do anything about it. Just let it happen, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. That's the natural decline of humanity. It doesn't get better unless God somehow intervenes in a miracle. Leave your children alone, and their children will be in a worse state of affairs. I call it family entropy. I thought of this example. It's not a very important example to some of you, but it was very clear in my family, very clear in my family. Just think of this as only as an illustration. I'm not preaching at you at this point. This is an illustration. My father was raised to honor the Lord's Day. There was only thing that was done on the Lord's Day was worship, rest, fellowship, and Christian service. That's it. Meals were prepared on the day before. My clothes were ironed the day before. Shoes were polished the day before. Everything was prepared so that day, the Lord's Day, Sunday, could be used in complete honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you sit and say, well, that's really extreme. Just follow the example. Then my dad got married. And I and my three sisters came along. And about six or seven o'clock at night, Suddenly, it wasn't the Lord's Day anymore. We could watch Bonanza. Well, I just forgot the name of the guy. Kind of had a variety show. That's it. Ed Sullivan. If the weather was good, I might be able to go outside and play catch a little bit with a ball and a glove. Maybe. But we still attended church twice on Sunday, Sunday school. My mother still ironed clothes. Dad did shoes. We had baths and showers before Sunday. Everything was done to eliminate. But you see, it wasn't quite as rigorous as my father. And then Deborah and I got married. And we had children. And a lot of things were allowed in our home. A lot of things. Yeah, we still went to church and Sunday school. But a lot of things were allowed on Sunday. And I don't say this in a condemning, judgmental way. But now I look at my children. And they might still go to church on Sunday. But the rest of the day is used for pleasure. Family entropy. You might sit here and say, Nah, Sunday, that's not a big deal. I might even agree with you to a point. But the illustration proves true in everything. Why did the midweek prayer meeting suddenly lose its value? Why did Sunday night services suddenly lose its value? Answer? The priority of getting wisdom and blessing. So there are parents here this morning in this room. I hope there are parents listening online. Where you and I have lessened the importance of 
spiritual priority in the home, unless God intervenes, your grandchildren will care even less. And your great-grandchildren might not care at all. Thankfully, God sometimes intervenes. Will you please weigh that, what I just said, carefully? You see, if Bible reading, family worship, prayer, service, obedience are not a priority in your home, they will be of no priority in your grandchildren's homes. Unless God intervenes. I'm still hoping on God intervening. Amen? The second thing we learn is that the instruction of past generations is really important. David was definitely dead. These kids didn't know their grandpa. But his wisdom that he passed on to Solomon was being passed on to his grandkids. And that means that just because David was old and dead didn't make his instruction of any worth. There are godly men and women in the past, and their teaching needs to be remembered, regurgitated, and stated. Do you hear me? There are godly men and women of the past. Their teaching needs to be taken personally and restated to your children. There are men and women in the past, perhaps even in your family tree, who have fought the good fight and finished the course and have reached that great goal of achievement before the Lord Jesus. And the things and the habits that they did in, in the pleasure of God need to be restated to your children and your grandchildren. The Holy Spirit in Hebrews calls us to be imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promise. There are men and women in the past that should not be dis disregarded. I've told you this so many times. I used to tell at least twice a year when I did biographies. My dad pleaded with me when I became a Christian, and he would, we had so much fun together. He said, son, read biographies. And I'm saying to you this morning, moms and dads, teach and read biographies to your family. There is wisdom from past generations that needs to be passed on to your generations. C.S. Lewis was once asked why he, always, why he always instructed people to read old books. And he said in so many words, it's a good rule if you read a new book, read an old one next. didn't plan to say this, but I sent my family an email this a couple of days ago of, some, of a great old hymn. And beloved, I'll just say this from the pulpit. There is some depth in those old hymns that drill down into the very place where you and I need consolation and encouragement, that the new music doesn't cut it. It can be good music. It can be nice music. I'm just saying, don't forsake those old hymns that drill down deep, and don't forsake those old books that drill down deep. Some of them are hard to read, but they're worth every sentence. We learn that from this passage, that the generations that have gone before us still have valuable content for you this morning. And I think the point is that our children will be impoverished if they're taught, if they're not taught, godly wisdom, biblical wisdom that also comes from previous generations. The 
As I close this morning, I'm wondering, some of you have been tracking with us as we've been working through Proverbs. I want to ask you a question before I close. I'm, I'm inviting you to, to look at your life and maybe make a commitment today. We saw Josh and Sherry make, dedicate themselves. Maybe some of you need to do that this morning. Has the Holy Spirit in this series in Proverbs brought any sense of urgency into your life about the priority of spiritual instruction from your home? This is God's word. This is inspired literature. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget it. Don't turn away from it. Do you see the urgency? Have you been getting that, men and women? Has God been speaking to you about this? This is our Heavenly Father. It's not Jim McClellan. This is our Heavenly Father saying, whatever you do, whatever you desire, whatever you pursue, make it the ambition to gain godly wisdom. Our Father's pleading with us this morning. Are you hearing His voice? As I said, Josh and Sherry made their commitment this morning. Maybe you need to make a commitment this morning. Maybe you need to, again, as parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, need to make a commitment. Remember Joshua leading the people of Israel into the promised land, and he paused at Shechem to worship God. And he said to the children of Israel, Now therefore, fear the Lord your God. Serve him with all sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. If it's evil to you to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. I cannot help but think the Holy Spirit would want you this morning as parents to make a commitment to Him. To make the choice to either serve the gods of this world or as of this day, recommit yourself as of you and your house to serve the Lord. It means whatever you do, whatever you pursue, whatever you want, the ambition is to serve the Lord. So after this chapter, I end up with this appeal. Who are you serving? Who am I serving? Would you please stand and bow your heads? heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm inviting you just to close in with the Lord. Just close in with the Holy Spirit. And ask yourself the question, who are you serving? This is not to be a display before me. I'm keeping my eyes closed. It's not a display before anybody else. But the question remains, who are you serving? Will you say in your heart, and mean it with all the grace, the enablement that God will give you, will you say in your heart today, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.
Lord, hear our prayer. Hear the cry of our hearts. Cause the families at Elk Point Baptist Church to have a vision for this generation and generations yet unborn. Help us to value the teaching of previous generations. Help us to be thankful for the grandpas and the grandmas that have learned so much in their walk with you. Help us to apply it to our instruction for others. Cause the families of the Elk Point Baptist Church to love your word, to love your presence in the home, to love your grace, and grow in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we be so bold this morning as to even ask you. We ask you today for the generations that will occupy this building in the years ahead. We pray for godly men and women filled with the Spirit of God, pursuing holiness in all that they do. And may the light of the gospel continue today and throughout the generations, if you should tarry. For we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. Tremendous amount about love. How, how do we measure love? Well, how do we measure love? Well, one of the ways we, we measure love is by the greatness of the lover, don't we? That, that's, how, that's how the stories work. That's how Cinderella works. The greatness of, it's the prince who has fallen in love with Cinderella. So we measure the greatness of the love by the greatness and dignity of the lover. And there is no greater dignity. That's what's so astonishing to the apostles. It's the Son of God who loved me. And then we measure love by the distance or the difference between the lover and the loved one. That's how Cinderella works, isn't it? If Cinderella were a princess, it, it wouldn't work in the same way. But she's not a princess. She's, she's, she's a poor girl. And that's what makes the prince's love so overwhelming. And that's what, that's what Paul has captured. The Son of God loved me. And, and before we translate that into our own experience, which is perfectly legitimate, don't just confuse that me with this me. That me. Who is this me? Well, this is the me who was trying to destroy the church. This is the me who... who had the blood of Christians on his hands. This is the me who seriously believed he was the chief of sinners. Now, I know we often say you can see Paul growing in holiness through the letters because he, he grows from being the least of the apostles to the chief of sinners. That may well be true. But Paul believed he was the chief of sinners because he really did believe he was the chief of sinners. But the Son of God loved him. But then we measure love by a, a third measurement, don't we? By what the lover will do for the loved one. What the lover will do for the loved one. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's unspeakable, isn't it? And let me remind you what he's doing here. He's saying, this is the one to whom you're united. This is the one to whom you're united. I wonder if you've ever met a Christian who just retains a, a deep sense of lack of assurance of 
of the love of God. A friend said to me recently, a, a mature Christian friend said to me, sometimes you wonder if he really loves you. He's gone through a hard time. Um, not much sign of it. So how do you really know Christ loves you? I, I rather suspect many Christians' subliminal answer to that is, well, things are going so well in my life. Um, those are the signs the Lord loves me. And see, that's why we get into difficulties when things aren't going well in our lives. We're, we're sitting there, he loves me, he loves me not. When things go well, I know he loves me. When things don't go well, I doubt whether he loves me. But the Bible never tells you to believe that Jesus loves you because good things are happening in your life. The Bible tells you to believe that Jesus loves you because he gave himself for you. Providence is extremely difficult to read because we're not God. We don't know what God is doing in our lives. We don't, we don't see the full picture. So where are we going to look? We're going to look to the place where he gave himself for us. Some of you uh, will know how Charles Haddon Spurgeon sometimes used to say, I look at the cross and I wonder if God loves me more than he loves his son because he's dying in my place, because he's given himself for me. I remember how Paul also, towards the end of Romans 8, says this is, this is the anchor of our assurance as those who are united to Jesus Christ. We know that he will give us everything we need because we know he gave us his son. It's as though God is saying, I don't have any more to give you. I've given you everything in giving my son to you. And this is the background to the idea of union with Christ. This is the Christ to whom we are united. It's amazing. From heaven he came and sought us to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought us. And for our life he died. This is the foundation of all of our union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Paul goes on to a, a second dimension here. So there's the, the wonder of the love of Christ for us is the foundation of this union. But then secondly, the nature of our response to him. I live by faith in him. Now, many of you know how the reformers and the, the reformed theologians have described faith as being a kind of amalgam of three dimensions. There is knowledge, because you, you can't believe in what you don't know. And there is assent, because you don't believe in something that your mind rejects. And then there is trust. Faith is entrusting yourself. I was taught as a young Christian that faith is forsaking all I take him. And that's what Paul is saying here. I live by faith in the Son of God. But notice what he's really saying here is not, I live by faith. No, he's saying, it's, it's not my faith that sustains me. It's the object of my faith that sustains me. And of course, later on, he'll, he'll put it a, a little bit differently, that this faith is a faith that unites me to Jesus Christ. I believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I am thus united to him, all that he is for me is also mine. All that he has done for me is also mine. And this is a very important thing for us to understand. That people often speak about their relationship to the Lord Jesus, don't they? Uh, very common. How is your relationship to the Lord Jesus? 
And often the answer to that question is, well, I'm struggling a bit or I'm backsliding to tell the truth or things are going really well. And in a way, I want to say that's not what I mean when I ask you what your relationship is. Um, if somebody says to me, what is your relationship to Dorothy? The answer is not, we're getting on okay at the moment or, you know, we're 4,000 miles away at the moment. My answer is I'm married to her. That's my relationship to her. And that does not change. In the ups and downs of life, that is the steady reality of our lives. And Paul wants us to understand that exactly the same is true of our union with Christ. It doesn't go up and down. Yes, our communion with Him. We may grieve the Holy Spirit. We may stumble and fail. We may we may turn away for a season, but the relationship is a constant reality, and it never changes. We live by faith in the Son of God. And the reason it never changes is because when we believe into Jesus Christ, something happens, says Paul. And what happens is this. I, at that point, I'm crucified with Christ. So I want to encourage you just to step back from that statement for a minute and, and parse it. Um, I know most of us didn't like the teachers who told us to parse verbs because we get kind of all confused with moods and voices and all the rest of it. But it's very important that we parse this statement of Paul. First of all, the tense, second, the voice, third, the mood. The tense, is it present or past? The voice, is it active or passive? The mood, is it indicative, a command, imperative? What is it? Well, look at what Paul says here. First of all, the tense, I have been crucified with Christ. Hold on to this. Paul is not telling you to do anything here. This is not something you have to do. This is something that has happened. This is something that happened to you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are other places where he tells us those, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its lusts. He says that at the end of Galatians. That's something we do. We are to put sin to death. We are to take up the cross and carry it daily. But that is not what he is saying here. This is not a command about what we are to do in the present. This is a statement about something that has happened to us in the past when we became united to Jesus Christ. And that's why it's in the passive voice. I have been crucified with Christ. And that's why it's not in the imperative mood, but the indicative mood. It's not telling us to do something. It's telling us to recognize something that has been done. In other words, it's encouraging us to recognize who we are. Who are you? I am somebody who has been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. What does Paul mean by that? Well, we'll explore that uh, later on in our studies, but it's a very important thing for us to ask. How do you think about yourself as a Christian? Because Paul is encouraging us to think about ourselves as Christians. We get up in the morning, who am I? When we become conscious that we are somebody, we say, well, who am I? Paul is not saying, you'll be one thing tomorrow, one thing today, different thing yesterday. He's saying the answer to that question every single day of your life as a Christian is, because I'm united to Christ who was crucified and raised, I am somebody in union with him who has been crucified and raised. The old has gone, the new has come. Isn't that what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? If anyone is in Christ, 
the old creation. It has gone. The new creation has come. How is the old creation gone? Because when you were united to Christ, you were united to a crucified Christ. And you shared in all the implications of that crucifixion when you believed into the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as some of our churches, we say the Apostles' Creed, probably most Sundays, and the minister or the person who's involved in the service usually introduces it by saying this, Christian, what do you believe? And what he means is, what do you believe about the truths of the gospel? And so we all say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, or one of the other creeds. But what if, to our surprise, the minister said, Christian, what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about yourself? I think it would be tragically unusual for a congregation, unless it were there in the order of service, instinctively to say, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. And yet Paul is saying this is absolutely definitive of what it means to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian unless you've been crucified with Christ. It's of the very essence of coming to faith in him and participating in what he has done so that it brings to an end the old life that you used to live. It, it's, it's on the other side of the cross. That's what he's saying. The person who takes up the cross and follows him is like the person who puts his hand to the plow and does not look back to that old life. Let me try it another way. Um, who are you? Well, I can't tell that by looking at you. I mean, you, 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 you might be English, you might be French, you might be Canadian, you, for all I know, you're German. I can't tell by looking at you. So who are you? Well, you're going to say, most people say, I am an American. So if I say to you as a Christian, who are you, Christian? Then this is, this is the heart of the response. This is who I am. I'm somebody who has been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. What happened to him is a reality in which I have come to share because by faith I've been united to him. And because I've been united to him, he has given me an entirely new and glorious identity. You know, that's we were thinking about this in the earlier study, weren't we? That's one of the basic problems of the world in which we live. People don't know who they are. And so they have to invent themselves. And it's actually the problem with many Christians. They don't know who they are. And so they're scurrying around inventing themselves and not reading their Bibles and learning from their Bibles who we really are in Christ. But then you notice he adds something else. Yes, I've been crucified with Christ. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But then he adds this, and this Christ has come to indwell me. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I said in, in an earlier study that the, the great focus of the New Testament is on getting out of ourselves into Christ. But you see, correspondingly, when the Spirit brings us out of ourselves into Christ, he also comes to dwell in us. He comes to dwell in us as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we are able to say, as Paul says here, Christ lives in me. I'll never, till my dying day and perhaps beyond that, ever forget the first time I heard a sermon. I think I was 15 
on the words of Paul in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you see, this is the other side of it, isn't it? Who am I? I'm somebody who's been crucified with Christ. But I'm also someone in whom that crucified, risen, ascended and reigning Christ by his Holy Spirit has come to indwell. That's who I am. That's why the Christian life is so extraordinary. That's why the gospel is so great. That's why salvation is so big. Because that's who you are. Christian, what do you believe about yourself? I've been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There couldn't be a closer union than union with Christ. Just before I ask you to move into little groups, if you weren't here when I gave that instruction, is that what we did last week, and I think it worked pretty well, is just people uh, gathered together in a little little group. It can be any number. It can be three, four, five of you just kind of lumped together. You have a copy of the discussion questions just to, to share my heart about these questions. Um, he, he points to the fact that sometimes we can judge God's love by the circumstances we're going through. And he certainly said no. No, that's not how we judge. We judge something. We judge that on the objective truth that the Son of God loved us and gave his life for us. That's it. But I'm asking you to, to, to push in, particularly because you and I could be in a role where we're helping somebody. What is it that, what are some of the causes? 